a number of you, maybe all of you, received in a mysterious email supposedly from me about uh, selling gift cards online. Anybody get an email like that? A few of you did. Yeah, Billy. <laughs> Uh, so just to clarify, I'm not selling gift cards online, okay? That's not me. That was somebody else pretending to be me, even though they had my name in the email. It wasn't my email. So just, and you know, going forward, I don't sell a whole lot of stuff online. So if you get other mysterious emails, somebody claiming to me, claiming to be me, it probably isn't me, okay? Now, uh, to be clear, I've sold a few things online. I've sold some pig crates recently that went really great from the old farm. And I'm still trying to sell a, um, a, a, a we use it as a baptismal, but it's actually a, a birthing pool, you know, that we, uh, we're going to use for baptisms, but we bought and then we decided not to use it. Uh, never been used for birthing. Uh, it's inflatable. If anybody's interested, the church is still, still trying to sell it. But other than that, I don't sell stuff online, Okay. So don't get confused by imitators or imposters. It's probably not me. So clarified that. Okay. Uh, we are about to wrap up our series in the book of Genesis. If you're new and if you're just joining us, I'm sorry. You missed out. Okay. But you can catch up online to find out what all we talked about for I don't know how many different sermons and three parts working through Genesis. And as I said last week, I always feel sad I get we get to the end of a book, maybe you don't, but I do, because I feel like I'm saying goodbye to an old friend, and that's kind of where we're at this morning, Genesis chapter 50. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're at. If you want to follow along, uh, we'll have some verses on the screen as we jump in here. The end of chapter 49, that's where we're at last week, and we talked about blessings, okay? Uh, all these blessings going with Jacob and his family and so forth. I was thinking about blessings this morning. As I sat down, I always get up early to review my notes and to pray and all the blessings that I have. As I sit down, I, I open up my breakfast Twinkie package uh, and prepare that for, yes, yes, you're jealous. I know you are. There's plenty out there. You can buy your own. I pour my hot cup of coffee. I, I, I light my happy candle. I've got a woodwick candle. I hear it crackling. It just makes me happy. I don't know if you're like that. I don't know if that sounds weird or not, but it's my happy candle. I arrange my, my laptop and, and my Bible and the stuff I'm going to use. And uh, this time of year, the sun's rising early, okay? So I can see the glow of the sunrise coming through the window. And then as the sun breaks forward, I don't know if you're up this morning, another beautiful sunrise. The colors bouncing through the, the sky and off the clouds. I see all that happening and as I was thinking about blessings, man, I'm blessed. Uh, do you have moments like that where you, everything kind of slows down and typically it happens in the morning and you begin to look around you and, and you know, count your blessings, see what God has done in the old song, if you're familiar with that. And truly, I'm blessed. And you think about what's going on in the world any day of the world, at any day of our lives, there's something, you know, blowing up around us and what's happening in the Ukraine, the the many issues that we face in our world today, whether it's Europe or Africa or South America or North America, there's always something going on. And uh, many times we're untouched here in America by what's going on in the corners of our world. We're blessed by that. Uh, as I consider the, the passage in uh, chapter 49 and thinking about the blessings, the blessings that, 
that we reap benefit from, how we're blessed today through those blessings that we looked at last week. The lion of the tribe of Judah wasn't just David, it's Jesus. We're gonna mention that again uh, this morning. Uh, looking or thinking about the ruling scepter that Jacob spoke of and his blessing to Judah. That scepter is not gonna depart. You don't understand it yet, but someday there will be another king. David came, he was king. He was an imperfect king, but that scepter then got passed on to Jesus. We are blessed by that this morning, amen? Uh, We consider Christ even in in more of a focused way because today's Palm Sunday, and we didn't have palms. I had to apologize to somebody this morning because we wouldn't have palms for Palm Sunday. I'm a loser for that, okay? You, just one more reason for you to think that. We didn't have palms. I'm sorry. We'll, we'll get better with that, okay? Uh, Jesus entering triumphantly. The blessing that we have through remembering, we looked at the wine, the, the miracle of Canaan, and in, in the wedding of Canaan, uh, the wine of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, how we benefit so many blessings. So here's how we're gonna begin this morning. We're gonna pause for prayer. We're gonna set all things aside. And I'll invite you right now to close your eyes with me, okay? And consider for just a few moments the enormous way that you've been blessed in your life. And yep, there are trials and there are struggles, no doubt. But let's focus just for a moment on a few of those things that come to mind right now and the ways that God has truly blessed you and thank him privately right now for the ways Uh, that he's blessed to come to mind, and then I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for warming our hearts again this morning in response to the glorious blessings that you've poured out on us over and over again. We recognize and realize we do not deserve them, and yet you give them. Great is your love and your faithfulness. These things that we've sung about this morning, they are true. Thank you, God, for your blessings. And now, Lord, as we move forward, as we consider more of the ways that you've blessed us and how they pour, they continue to pour into our lives, I pray, Lord, that you would work. Holy Spirit, make our hearts soft. Renew our minds so that we can hear and believe and trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. We have come to the end of the story of the patriarchs. Hundreds of years have gone by uh, from when we first looked all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. God speaking to Abram. God sending Abram into a land he never heard of before with no road map, just go from Abraham to Isaac and all of the things that he went through and then uh, to Jacob and, the gro- and his family growing. And then we see in chapter 49 some interesting things happening. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the 12 tribes of Israel. We don't have 12 full tribes yet, but we do have the sons that will begin those tribes And let me show you a slide that we've used in the past. Maybe it looks familiar, but I've made a few changes here and there, okay? You notice that Joseph and Levi, those those names are in red italics, and there's a reason for that, because as 
this whole family now has moved to Egypt. They are about to begin to grow. God's blessing is poured out on them, and they will become tribes in the future, except that Joseph and Levi don't. Joseph's line does not become one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Levi, uh, his family clan, uh, they continue on uh, eventually as the, uh, the people of Israel return uh, from Egypt back to the promised land. But the line of Levi, they're not uh, given an area or a place in the land to occupy like the other clans are. Levi, his offspring, his descendants will become uh, priests and leaders in the temple in the future, but they're not given a place in the land. So you might take those two out, and then you're left with 10 names. Ah, but remember, this weird interaction that Jacob had with Joseph, at least it seems weird to us, uh, that we looked at last week. Jacob mentions Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, by name, and he says, I'm adopting those boys. And what we, what we didn't understand last week is made clear for us now. Those boys, as they're adopted into Jacob's family, become the last two men that are needed to establish those clan, the, the tribes of Israel. So we were at 12, we were down to 10, and now we're back to that perfect number 12 again. And those are the families that begin to grow in the land of Egypt. So that's what happens at the end of chapter 49, and then we enter into chapter 50, and as I studied and as I read it and we come to the end of Genesis, it is just an epic thing. If I could produce a movie with a, a bazillion dollars so it was just right, you know, not some cheesy, cheapo movie, but if I could produce a movie at the end of Genesis, I, I picture this grand uh, image, that, this grand picture, this panoramic picture happening here at the end of chapter 49 and into 50, because we see at the end of 49, after Jacob finishes uh, blessing his sons, he then dies. And then this lengthy period of time happens where not just Jacob's family mourns for the loss of Jacob, but all these officials in Egypt mourn. And they prepare his body for burial. He made his son's promise that when I'm gone, when I'm dead and gone, you're going to take me back to the place where uh, the other patriarchs had been buried in that tomb. You're going to take me there. And Joseph follows through on that promise. He goes to Pharaoh. Can we leave and go bury my father? He says yes, but he doesn't just stop there. He sends this great caravan. Uh, he sends them all out. Verse 9 of chapter 50, and there and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So here's that panoramic picture. Not just a few people, but this enormous number of people and all these animals and, and carts, all, pe all these people leaving from Egypt to go back to Canaan and to take uh, the remains of Jacob and to bury the, him there. So they get there and there's this, all this mourning that goes on uh, beyond the Jordan. His sons did what he asked him to do. They bury him there. And then verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. What uh, a fascinating way, a beautiful way in through that morning uh, for us to end, at least to begin to 
end this epic book together. But we don't end there because after they come back to Egypt, there is this big now what moment. There is fear that comes back into the brothers of Joseph. We've already looked at that. Uh, maybe you remember when they, they finally realized uh, it was their brother Joseph they'd, they'd sold into slavery. That same Joseph was now this, this uh, massive authoritative ruler in Egypt, and he now has the power to wipe them out, but he doesn't. Well, after Jacob is dead, they have another fear moment, because what if uh, all of this has been a charade? What if Joseph is holding back simply because Jacob is still around, dad is still watching, and now dad is gone, will this be the moment that Joseph can have revenge on all of us? So that's what we read at the beginning of chapter 50. And and actually, let's read that together, uh, starting at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, We are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. Then if we were to read further, we're going to stop there for this morning, but we see the account, it's a very brief account of the death of Joseph, and then all the way down to verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin, where? In Egypt. And that is our teaser to think about Exodus. But the story for now with all of Jacob's descendants and their families, it ends for us right now in Egypt. Three things that Joseph tells his brothers at that moment when they go to him, three things that not just wrap up and kind of bring a nice conclusion to their relationship, their family relationship, but really, I think, three things that he emphasizes that the narrator, the author Moses, is giving us uh, that really wrap up and bring together the whole book. All of these things we've talked about for 50 chapters, all of these events that have gone on for centuries now, they come together, I think, in this final summary kind of statement that Joseph gives to his brothers and then really the narrator gives to all of us. Three things that Joseph tells his brothers that we'll expand on this morning. Number one, God is over all things. Now, the narrator tells us that the brothers said, well, dad told us to say this. There's no indication whether dad told him to say that or not. 
Uh, so maybe out of fear, they bring Jacob into it, you know, and bring it from beyond the grave, bring his endorsement here. But maybe they just made it up in trying to gain whatever favor that they feel like they have probably lost with Joseph at the time. We don't know. But I think there's every reason to believe they come to Joseph out of fear, fear that Joseph will finally have his revenge. So what is Joseph's response? Begins in verse 19. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Uh, this interesting response he has to that message. Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Joseph is quick to remind them that even with all of his power, with all of the authority of Egypt at his disposal, even Joseph is limited. God, on the other hand, is not. God is greater, and God is the one in charge. Joseph isn't. Because of this simple fact, they have nothing to fear. They're standing before this all-powerful man without fear. Joseph knows this and humbly submits to the greater power that is God. And they should too, and you know what? We should as well. A major theme. This is a huge theme. It is explored all throughout Genesis. Who is really in charge? Not just of these momentary situations, the problems they face, but throughout all of creation, from the first chapter through the 50th, who is in charge of what is going on? Through all of these things, through all of these problems, through all of these redemption moments, these beautiful pictures that God gives us of what he can do, through all of them, God is sovereign without exception. So, the question that they have, at least I think a pretty good question that they have, that they would have had, that we have, is uh, it, it comes down to this. Do we submit to the things around us that bring fear? Maybe not, maybe not quickly, but uh, probably eventually. Or do we submit to God because God alone is truly God? All, of thing, all the things around us, they have their origin in God's greater plan and purpose, his sovereign plan. All things work according to what God's plan is, and God can be trusted with his plan, even in those times we feel like he can't, so we can rest in him. Remember back in the creation days, what does God do at the end of those days? He rested. Not because he was, wow, man, that was tough especially that one animal that whatever Adam, you know, none of that. The rest is, is peace in the completion of the purpose that God had. All of it was done and it was very good through the creation of, of man and woman. And then we begin to see a hint, a reminder, am I God? No, you're not. Who is? God is God. We can rest in him just as he rested we can find that kind of perfect relationship that I believe is hinted at through these redemption stories, even as Joseph and his brothers find redemption and reconciliation. You are not in the place of God, never have been, never will be. That place is reserved for the only God, the true God. That's number one. Number two, 
God is at work. He's at, he's at work in these little things, these little details, and the big ones. All of them. Nothing is too big or too small for God. We see that in verse 20. What you meant for evil, Joseph reminds them. I don't think they need to be reminded. But he lays it out there. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's a reminder that Joseph graciously offers in the, in the face of the fear of his brothers. So one more time, many times we've mentioned, and I've tried to draw our attention to the providence of God and how in the, in the, it, to us in our limited perspective, the mysterious way that God can pull things together. I use the illustration of a, of a dovetail construction, remember that? How God can pull all things together, even those things that we want to reject or ignore to quickly get past or get away from, nothing is wasted with God. What you meant for evil, for evil, even that, God uses and redeems and providentially brings together for his plan. Doesn't mean it's easy to understand, doesn't mean it's easy to accept, doesn't mean it's quick or painless. So that is Joseph's message, we see that, as a major theme throughout Scripture, throughout Genesis, especially towards the end of uh, Joseph's life with his brothers. So without getting too deep into it this morning, I do want to kind of insert one uh, rhetorical question right now, but a question I hope will stick with you beyond this morning and beyond the ending of the book of Genesis. We all struggle. This is be real time. We all struggle with God's providence. How could he not waste anything? How could he possibly use the stuff that we struggle with, the evil that has happened in our lives? How could a good and gracious God also include those things? The question I want to leave you with, does God still work in that way today? An honest question. A real, like an actual question, okay? Everybody, everybody I'm looking at right now, I know you've had deals, issues, problems, struggles. How could God be in that? All right, that's your question this morning. Write it down, put it on your, your notes app, whatever. Does God still work in this way today? What somebody else meant for evil, God meant it for good in your life. And not just write it down and forget about it. I would encourage you to make it a matter of prayer. And not just a matter of prayer. As you're praying, find somebody, somebody in your life who also knows Christ, has a relation with Christ, to then begin to seek out together the answer to that question. We are not meant to be alone. And especially in these difficult, deep questions in life, that's where we need the fellowship. Uh, that's where we need to reflect these ideas as we seek God in prayer to continue to lean on each other. We can't leave and we shouldn't leave this bigger question unanswered. That's the danger. That's, a, that's the fear I have. In ending Genesis, we've been introduced to this major theme. It could easily be something that we consider intellectually and put on a shelf. Don't do that. What is it that God wants to bring to your attention 
as he works even through the difficulties and through the painful things of life. Number three, God provides all things needed. We've seen that throughout this book. We see it through the life of Joseph as he interacts with his brothers. So he finishes verse 21, don't fear. Do not fear, okay? Look at me, listen to me, he says. I know where you're at and where your hearts are at, but don't do it. Don't fear. There is no revenge here. I'm not gonna go back and uh, now that we're back in Egypt, I'm gonna find a way to get at you. Don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. The response to evil in Joseph's life is not only forgiveness, as we've already looked at, but loving kindness. It's going the extra mile. It's the extreme opposite of everything that that the brothers ever did to Joseph. Not only am I not gonna get back at you, look at all of this, this land of Goshen uh, near the, the river, near these fertile areas for you and your family, your children, your livestock, all of this is yours. No one's gonna go hungry. What kind of blessing is that? And think, just think about, who does that? Who does that? And, and all the ways uh, that maybe you've been wronged. Imagine going to that, ex- maybe some of you have done that. I haven't. <laughs> that's, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the biggest area that we struggle with. Because it's one thing to say, I forgive you, and I'm not gonna come back and get you, but, but wow, to go the extra, the extra mile, to take the extra step, not only am I gonna forgive you, I'm gonna love on you like no one else has. Who does that? Think about that. He shows them this radical extent of loving kindness. And it's, it's none other than the sign that Joseph truly understands the grace of God because he's been changed by it. I'm, I'm talking radical change by it. He shows that kind of love to that extent. Only God does that in the heart of a person who's come to know him and begins to understand, I've received that kind of grace. What Joseph has freely received, he just gives away. Take it. I love you that much. I'm gonna give you everything you need and more. That's the picture that we get from God, not only in this chapter, but throughout this story. As you think back at how God extended grace to people that weren't deserving, people that rejected him, people that continued these crazy dysfunctional habits, these lifestyles that were dead ends, spiritually, religiously. Think about that. God continues to restore. God continues to change lives. God continues to make a difference and make a way for people who continue to reject him. The life of Joseph and his example, this beautiful example of how God never abandons his people. Not only is he at work, he shows his love, he graciously provides in the midst of all this trouble and struggle and even rejection. Now, look at that list on the screen. Just take a moment. I know you've already been looking at it, but take a a moment, just a few more moments, okay? Look at that list, okay? God's ongoing sovereign plan 
for the good of Joseph, this abundant plan, really, for Joseph and the growing family reminds us, I think in summary form here, okay, of these major themes that go throughout Genesis. We've looked at that. I've I've tried to draw your attention to that. But these themes, the way that God works, they do not die with Joseph in chapter 50. Throughout Scripture, they go on through the lives, through the narrative from Exodus forward. We continue to see them uh, reinforced in what God is doing through ordinary people, people like us, chapter after chapter of God's Word. It reveals more to us about these themes, and they're developed through the history of Israel from the Exodus forward. Uh, They They work through what's going on there in the promised land. Again, there's plenty of examples of sin, rebellion, and brokenness, yet God continues to return and to restore and to show grace and to provide uh, all the, the, you know, one of the, I would say probably one of the most difficult books and one of the reasons I've avoided it so far uh, is Judges. Has anybody ever read the book of Judges? Talk about brokenness, dysfunction. We've only got a taste of it so far. And what people are capable of doing, the Bible is filled with real, gritty, wicked stuff. And yet God continues to redeem and to move people forward in that sense. And then after the time of judges, the time of kings, the rise of the monarchy and David and Solomon and even uh, in what is good, there is also wickedness and deception and evil and rebellion there and then on through the exile and then the return, all the things that the prophets spoke about. And there is much that God is angry about with his chosen people, but at the same time, there are these glimmers of hope that God is still at work, that even though his people are in exile, that he has a plan to return his people, to prosper them. It's going to take time, but God's still at work in that, so don't give up hope, okay? He never slams the door, There's always at least a glimmer of hope that God is still at work. We see that happening with the return and then the wait. 400 years of silence from the minor prophets and God has finally stopped speaking through the prophets. uh, Scholars say about 400 years, silence. Nothing as far as we can tell and what is happening with God and his people. And then what was prophesied, what was spoken of in the blessing that from the lion that, or from the tribe of Judah, a lion will come and that, that scepter is not gonna be removed ever. So we saw that with David and Solomon, yet, well, well they ceased, right? And the line of the kings, well, that ended. Uh, so we, a reminder to the people that that scepter is still there. And where do we see it? We see it reappear in the gospels. And that's the one of the many links that brings the original covenant the original testament to the new covenant, the new testament. We see the scepter return, but not as, well, what everybody expected as the ruling king and conqueror. We see the gospels introduce us to a baby. And every Christmas, we talk about the advent and we look forward to the coming. But as a reminder for you this morning, we don't, we don't spend that time in advent, as you know, looking for a a king to appear, we see a baby appear in a manger, tiny, fragile. And that baby becomes Jesus, the the ministry of Jesus, as we see in the Gospels unfolding. Saw a hint of that last week. And then 
we come to Palm Sunday. And through all the miracles and all the workings, Jesus drawing attention to anyone who has ears to hear about the kingdom coming. A kingdom not with horses and with kings conquering horse, uh, on horses and, and walls and all that jazz. None of that. A king is coming to establish a kingdom in your heart, to sink it down deep into you. And as the prophet Jeremiah spoke of, there will be a time coming where I'm going to establish a new kingdom in your heart, and then everyone's going to know me. Oh, the beauty, the simplicity of what seemed to be so complex, but it really comes down to the work of Jesus. We see that in the Gospels. And then fast forward to John. If you uh, maybe you've already got a habit of doing this. If you don't, let me, let me suggest something. We are now beginning the Passion Week. Half of the book of John, the Gospel of John, is a Passion Week. You could drop in uh, John 12 or uh, John 13, and, and from the rest of the book of John, you get John's perspective on what the good news looks like as Jesus teaches the disciples in those last days, those last hours even, leading up to the cross. John chapter 13 uh, gives us this glimpse, this introduction really. John uh, 13 verse 1 uh, tells us how Jesus says, uh, or John says about Jesus' ministry at this point, it, he's, he is going to love them to the end. And through the rest of the gospel, we see what the end truly is. Now, as we close this morning, here's what I want to do. What we see through Joseph and his Final words to his brothers in chapter 50, we see a mirror image. We see what that looks like in a very similar way in the life of Jesus and how the gospels work out. So on that slide, you see from Joseph to Jesus. What we just spoke of on the left-hand side, that's what Joseph spoke of to his brothers. But in a similar way, we see, especially this week, we focus in on what it is that Jesus does, what Jesus speaks of as he loves the disciples, like what I just said, John 13, 1, loves the disciples to the end. Number one, Jesus has authority over all things. I don't have this passage on the slide, but if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to catch just a glimpse of what I mean by this. In Matthew's account of, the God, uh, of Jesus going to Jerusalem, we're going to jump in here, kind of parachute into chapter 16, from 16 forward is basically uh, that last journey that Jesus takes with his disciples on their way to Jerusalem for what we typically call the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, okay? But in chapter 16, he is now speaking more clearly to disciples. He's trying to explain to them clearly and directly exactly what it is that he is about to do and how he's going to do it. So Matthew 16, uh, beginning at verse 21 from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's confused. 
He's the guy, if you know Peter, if you read the Gospels, consider Peter. He's the guy up front. He's the high D personality. He's the driven. He's the guy who wants to be there and make a difference. He's the, he's the loudmouth guy. He's typically the guy who speaks before he thinks, okay? And here's probably another example of that. He speaks into something he doesn't fully understand. No, not you, Jesus. No way is that going to happen. His concept, along with all the other disciples, is Jesus is going to enter a whole different way. And Jesus is speaking of entering Jerusalem to suffer uh, at the hands of others and be killed. No way, he says to Jesus. Where is that? What's the root of his response? I believe it's another example of fear. I think all these things he's saying is coming out of this deep, seated fear. No way, Jesus. You can't, what, what would happen? What, how could you? The, the, the fear response in so, not just Peter, but in so many of us, it, it seems to be the root of so many things that come flying out of our mouths, as well as growing up and, and coming out of our hearts. I think he's dominated by fear. But Jesus' response, he rebukes him in the, in the firmest of ways, calls him Satan, wouldn't that be a great thing, right? He just, he just just before that, spoke of Peter being a rock and building the church on Peter, and now he's calling him Satan. Kind of a rough day, right, if that happened in the same day. Uh, but he makes a statement here, does he not? Jesus says, get behind me. That is wrong. There, you are a hindrance, he says, for you're not, for you're what? You're setting your mind on, uh, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind, I believe, out of fear, on the things of man. Peter, you're not going to understand what's going on now. That's what Jesus is saying. You're allowing yourself to be dominated by fear, controlled by fear, but the things of God are different, and these things are going to take place, and Jesus is being given the authority by God the Father to enable these things, to enact these things to take place. What it is now you don't understand, and it's not the way you think it should be. But Jesus has the authority to complete the plan. Jesus has authority over all these things. Think for just a moment to try to apply what's going on here, okay? Is your response, especially those things that you don't want, is your response in the moment the default of fear or is it growing into a response of faith? Let that one also sink in. So many things in our lives we don't, that happen to us, we don't want. And at some point, I think most of us realize there's really nothing in life we can control. There really isn't. I mean, counselors talk about it all the time. You can't control anything in life, except possibly, in some ways, your response to the uncontrollable. By the grace of God at work in our lives, renewing our hearts and our minds, we can begin to see as things happen, even in real time, even quickly, in this moment right now, do I respond in fear? This is probably going to lead to all sorts of other dysfunction and sin. Or right now, could, could Jesus have authority over this even that I don't want, that I didn't ask for, that seems to be tearing my life apart? Is he also involved in this? And as we learn how to respond in faith, we come to the point by God's grace that we begin to understand even that can have a purpose in God's plan. It's not to be feared. I can choose by God's grace to respond in faith.
placing my trust again in him. So as Jesus does the will of the Father, as we move on here in the story of what's unfolding before, well, Peter and the disciples, the forces of evil become more and more active. Uh, Certainly, he comes in Jerusalem. uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, son of David. The celebration of the crowd quickly dies down. And for the rest of the week, what builds up is the opposition because of the forces of evil to tear down what it is that Jesus has come to uh, come to do to distract to come up against the Messiah I believe the forces of evil there are present in all sorts of ways that we see them everything they had everything that Satan had to try to distort and to confuse and frustrate whatever it is that God is doing because I don't think Satan knew exactly what he was doing but something's going down and he's going to do all he can to stop it John chapter 1, verse 11. It's kind of the summary thought in that. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Oh, they received him in joy on the Palm Sunday thing, right? Hosanna, uh, you're coming as king, right? Things are going to get better quickly now, right? And uh, we don't have time to look at all that story, but the gospels show us where did, Jesus comes in riding in a peaceful way on a donkey, enters into the gates, and the the streets are lined with the people celebrating. And where does he go? Does he go to the seat of political power to establish his rule? He goes, nope. He goes to the temple. Starts throwing tables around and speaking of his father, and the crowds go away. What a disappointment. And then the tables turn on Jesus, and the rejection begins to happen. And begins to ramp up in increasingly evil ways. The persecution and rejection of the leaders, the Roman governors, uh, the final evil experienced by Jesus through the abandonment of the disciples in the garden. What hurts worse? The, the, uh, the stripes on his back, the beating at the hands of the Roman officials, or the men that you spent three years with running away from you? with the final exclamation point of Peter. Peter has a chance. And as the, as the Gospels depict it, I think Peter and Jesus probably had eye contact at that moment, uh, even in the darkness. I, I, my, my thinking is they could see each other. And Peter had three chances, right? To say, yep, I was with him, and I know him. And he denied him every time. The cock crows, Jesus sees him. What hurts worse? The evil at work to destroy his mission, to break him apart, even as he wept in the garden and the tears uh, and the sweat becomes blood. Lord, take this cup from me. I can't endure it, yet not as I will, but as you will. You're the authority here. I will do your will. God has done a work through Jesus' obedience through all of that evil. It was meant to stop him. God meant our good. As we read this morning, I'll read it again for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our, for, let it, let it sink in. For our sake. For your sake. God the Father made Jesus, made him to be sin. He became your sin. All of it, all the secret stuff, all the embarrassing stuff, all the terrible stuff. Jesus 
didn't just acknowledge it. It wasn't a theological principle for us to read and study. He became it. For your sake, he became sin. He who knew no sin. In purity of life and purpose, Jesus lived. He became sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus Christ, we might become slightly better than we were before. What do we sing about this morning? Because of what Jesus did, we became the righteousness of God. How righteous is God? Can we ever plumb the depths? Can we ever understand fully his beauty and perfection and power in all of his rightness for eternity? And it's given to you as a gift. That same righteousness without missing a single piece of it. God's righteousness becomes ours. God worked through Jesus in ways that ought to still blow our minds. And what he gives us, what he extends to us freely as a gift because of his love. All done through Jesus for us which is also providing, God providing the greatest, providing for the greatest need anyone has ever had to be made right with God as a gift because we can't do it as many ways and many times as we try. God sent Christ not rushing through on Palm Sunday uh, on the mighty steed, warrior, uh, victor, king, conquering king. God sent Christ as a suffering servant, for the good of all who call on him, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what the Gospels tell us, not just kept alive for now, but saved for all of eternity, in perfection, and in peaceful shalom completeness. John three seventeen, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to provide your greatest need to save it to save it through Jesus Christ. Go with us to the cross this Friday night. I don't know what you've got planned this coming weekend. Uh, We'll be meeting at Cedarwood for a special time of celebration and worship. It's a somber time. We call it, you know, for years, tradition is Good Friday. Go with us into that time and slow down We're not going to rush into Easter Sunday. We're going to slow down and we're going to consider again the weight of the journey that Jesus took for us to that cross. Remember again what being righteous required of Jesus. Take a long, hard look at the cross. Every Sunday we display it here. This Friday, take a longer look at it and consider Jesus hung on that cross. Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. We mentioned that again this morning. That was a curse from Moses. You can read about that in the original Testament. Jesus became a curse so that we could be blessed through him and find life in him. Remember the fear of the disciples. Not just them. We're not ripping on them from a safe distance. Remember the fear that they had as their worlds came apart and allow Jesus to remind you 
that he takes care of your fear. Your world was apart, and now he brings it back together because of the blood on that cross. Feel the darkness setting in. On that hill is the world around them turned to darkness. My God, why have you forsaken me? The mystery, theologians love to uh, spill a lot of ink on that one. What was happening? We'll never know completely fully. We'll never be able to understand how is it that the dynamic nature of the Godhead could ever be broken, could ever be for a few moments in our time be different. But something happened that was different. On the cross with the sky turning black, how, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The turning point there that happened in some way, in some fashion, that God the Father turned away, even for a moment, because of the weight of the guilt of the sin for all mankind. There, feel the darkness setting in. And at the end of our time, as we leave on Friday night, I hope you can join us at Cedarwood. Uh, and as we leave, remember that that's not the end. The beauty of coming to Easter Sunday is to remember why it's so sweet. Remember why it's so beautiful. To remember why the dawn brings that kind of blessing into our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this book, this book of Genesis, where it has led us the deepening, the broadening of our understanding of your work through the patriarchs and their family, bringing about something that they could not do on their own, and the mystery and the wonder of how you worked and how you provided and how you blessed despite the problems and the sin. Oh, Jesus, as we remember this week what it is that you came to do, as the Gospels tell us, you set your face towards Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop you. And we give thanks and we give praise and honor and glory because nothing did stop you. And you finished the plan of the Father perfectly. You who knew no sin becoming my sin so that I could have the righteousness of God. Jesus, as we come to sing at the end of this service, I pray that you would move our minds and our hearts forward to remember what it is that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.